The Lord is so kind. He did not have to save us, church. Our sin did not obligate him. But in his kindness, in his mercy and in his might, he has saved us. So good. He is so good. I don't know about you, but I want to talk a little bit about the salvation we have this evening. I like talking about the cross. I love to sing about it, talk about it. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I want you to notice that there's a red piece of paper in front of you. There's also a pencil there. Red piece of paper. It's very important. We're going to exercise this evening the benefits of the cross of Jesus Christ. So this evening, while we're discussing these things, should a sin enter your mind? A sin that was done to you or a sin that you yourself have committed? Should a sin enter your mind tonight, write it down. Now, no peeking. No, it's like a, you don't look into the right or to the left, brothers and sisters. It's going to be between each individual and the Holy Spirit tonight. But we're going to deal with those things. Now, they've been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. But we're going to endeavor to lay hold of the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ tonight. So, at any time this evening, should a sin enter your mind that you yourself struggle with currently, are fearful of falling into in the future, or have had committed against you, I want you to write that down tonight. Now, in Romans chapter 3, we have a sobering view of humanity. It starts in verse 10, where it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear before their eyes. Now this is God's assessment of humanity. It certainly isn't humanity's assessment of humanity. Humanity is quite enthralled with itself. Quite enchanted with itself, isn't it? But this is God's perspective of humanity. It's important that we lay hold of God's perspective of humanity, for if we fail to recognize that, then we will never be able to recognize the full wonder of what Jesus did on the cross for us. This is God's assessment of humanity. That there's not even one who is good. Isaiah 64 concurs when it says in verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. 
For all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Listen to the phraseology of the Word of God. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. Can anybody testify? The Bible describes sin as having a power. God warned Cain, and you know what Cain did? Cain killed Abel. But before Cain killed Abel, God warned him and said, Cain, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. Now that word in desire is only used a couple times, that word for desire is only used a couple times in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It means a desire to dominate, a desire to lord over, a desire to rule over and against. He said, Cain, sin is at your door, crouching at your door. And its desire is for you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to rule over you. And then he said, but you must be master over it. Cain failed in that. He could not be master over sin. Nor could any of humanity subsequent to Cain. There is only one who ever came that in and of himself had the wherewithal, the quality, the ability, the personhood to be master over sin. His name is Jesus. The sinless one. He is the only one. Hebrews says that he is pure and undefiled, separate from sinners. But you see, Jesus came to claim for himself a kingdom. And he came to claim for himself people. And the ideal of the king is that his people would be reflective of who he is. Originally, humanity was created in the image of God, and it was good. But humanity fell. Jesus came to redeem humanity. Jesus came to restore humanity. Jesus came to set right that which had gone wrong. And he came to restore us back unto the image of God. Now God is master over sin. But we have inherited a sin nature from Adam, the Bible teaches. Jesus came to do away with that sin nature that we might become dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And he says, the word of God says in Romans chapter 6, Therefore, sin shall no longer be master over you. Because what Jesus Christ did upon the cross is he broke the power structure of sin, understand. He broke the back of sin, so to speak. It's just like when Joshua and the Israelites went into the land. And they conquered the land. One region at a time, one people group at a time. And they broke the previously existing power structure in that land that newness might come. Jesus Christ broke the previously existing power structure of sin over and in humanity that new life might come. 
And what we have in the person of Jesus Christ is new life. New life is required because of the assessment by God of humanity represented here in Romans chapter three, that there is not one who is good, not one who seeks after God. All have gone astray. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags and our iniquities sweep us away like the wind. Now, not all of humanity agrees with God's assessment. The mantra of humanity is, I'm okay, you're okay. How many times have you heard in your evangelistic endeavors, I'm a good person? I saw a sticker this morning, right here in Carpinteria. A bumper sticker. I was coming, I was coming all over the freeway on Linden, and I got to the intersection of, of Linden and Carp Ave, and there was a nice uh, uh, Chevy, uh, you know, the, when they dress up the Chevy truck and they call it an Escalade, but it's the truck, you know what I mean? Nice. Escalade, and it was in the left lane. It was going to turn on Carpinteria Ave and go down towards Foster Freeze, and I was going to go straight down Linden to come to church. And so I'm checking out the Escalade, not coveting, just looking. <laughs> just checking out the Escalade. And I noticed a bumper sticker. But the bumper sticker wasn't on the bumper. Now, how much you believe your bumper sticker is revealed on where you put it. If you put a bumper sticker on the bumper, it was a whim, perhaps. It was a cutesy little thing you saw in the 99 cent store. But if you put the bumper sticker on the paint of your car, you're convinced. If you put the bumper sticker on the paint of an Escalade, you are passionate about the truth you are proclaiming. The bumper sticker said, born okay the first time. In other words, the bumper sticker said, I do not need to be born again. The man was thoroughly convinced, or he wouldn't have put on the pain of his escalade. The man finds his opinion in contention, contrasting, in friction to God's opinion about humanity. And so it says in verse 19 then, now we know that whatever the law says, capital L, not talking about the city law or governing laws, talking about the law of God as given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. You see, the reason that God ever gave his law to humanity is that humanity might become accountable. That is the reason that he tabernacled with Moses on Mount Sinai. The reason that he had Moses meet him there was so that he could give the law, his standard, his righteousness, his ways, so that he could give them to Moses, so that Moses could give them to the rest of humanity that humanity might know that it is under an authority. 
which again is a point that humanity disagrees with, which is why people are so dang religious about evolution, so thoroughly dogmatic about it, because they want with every fiber of their so-thought-evolved being for there to not be a God. Because if there's no God, they could do whatever they want to do. But if there's a God, then they're accountable to him. And he is a him. And they're accountable to him. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And by the works of the law, by doing things that are perceived to be good or are good, by doing right things, no flesh will be justified. No human being will ever be declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified. Nobody will ever be declared righteous by what they do. The Bible says it's an impossibility. They will never be declared righteous by what they do. And yet, how many times in your evangelistic endeavors do you hear people not only say, I'm basically good, but also I do a lot of good things? It's a common belief. But no human will ever be declared righteous. That is, they will never be said to have right standing with God, by God, simply because they do the right things. Because the purpose of the law, it says here, is to bring the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to bring knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. Now, the law consists of 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613 commandments. Those who endeavor to live by the law must obey every single one of them. Because First John says, if you transgress one point in the law, you've transgressed the whole thing. Because the whole is a unit. And there are 613 of them in the Old Testament. And if you transgress one, you've transgressed all. And the wages of sin, the retribution for transgression is death, the Bible says. 613 commandments that humanity will be held accountable for. We talk about, oh no, the Ten Commandments have gotten out of school. What about the 603 other ones? I have here, printed on computer paper, every commandment in the Old Testament. Sweetheart, can you come here? Can you just begin to walk that down that aisle and we'll see how long it is? 613 commandments issued by the Lord to humanity. And we are accountable for every single one of them. 613 commandments. And we are accountable for every single one of them. What this tells us is that humanity is guilty. The Bible says that Jesus is the judge. Now, only the judge could render the verdict. The Bible says that Jesus 
nailed to the cross a certificate of debt. That certificate of debt is a record of wrong deeds spoken of in Isaiah chapter 65 of humanity. Everywhere that we have ever transgressed the law, fallen short of, sins of commission and omission have been recorded by God. It's a horrible truth. It's a horrible truth. And there's a certificate of debt consisting against us. And the law tells humanity that humanity is guilty. Now, that presents a problem for God. Because God is an immeasurable lover. God is an immeasurable lover. And it was unacceptable to God that humanity should be ever separated from Him by that certificate of debt. And so God came up with the coolest plan the world has ever known. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. What the law communicates to humanity is not only the guilt that we bear before God, but it also communicates to humanity the righteousness of God. It's God's righteous standard. How would humanity know who God is and the standard that he holds if it were not revealed? And so the righteousness of God was revealed in the law. But it says here that apart from the law, the righteousness of God was also made manifest. So how did God manifest or make known his righteousness apart from without the law? And it says also that this manifestation of the righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a Hebraic idiom for saying the Old Testament. This righteous revelation of God was made manifest and it was witnessed by the Old Testament. See if you could tell who I'm speaking about. Genesis says about this somebody that he is the seed of the woman. He is Shiloh. Exodus says he is the Passover lamb. Leviticus says the anointed high priest. Numbers says he's a star of Jacob and the brazen serpent. Deuteronomy says he's a prophet like Moses and the great rock. Joshua says he's the captain of the Lord's host. Judges says he's a messenger of the Lord. In Ruth, he's a kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's a great judge. And in 2 Samuel, he's the seed of David. In 1 Kings, he's the Lord God of Israel. In 2 Kings, he's the God of the cherubim. In 1 Chronicles, he's the God of our salvation. In 2 Chronicles, he's the God of our fathers. Ezra says he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Nehemiah, he's a covenant-keeping God. He's a God of providence in Esther. He's the risen and returning redeemer in Job. He's the anointed son, the holy one, the good shepherd, and the king of glory in Psalms. He's a wisdom of God in Proverbs. He's a one above the sun in Ecclesiastes. He's a chief among 10,000 and altogether lovely in the Song of Solomon. In Isaiah, he is a virgin-born Emmanuel. He is wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the man of sorrows. Jeremiah says he's the Lord of our righteousness. Lamentation says he's a faithful and compassionate God. In Ezekiel, he is the Lord that is there. 
And Daniel, the stone, the son of God and the son of man. He's the king of the resurrection in Hosea, the God of the battle and the giver of the spirit in Joel. He's the God of hosts and the plumb line in Amos. He's a destroyer of the proud in Obadiah. He's the risen prophet, the God of the second chance, the long suffering one in Jonah. He's a God of Jacob, the Bethlehem born and the pardoning God in Micah. He's the avenging God the bringer of good tidings in Nahum. He's the everlasting peer, glorious and anointed one in Habakkuk. He's the king of Israel in Zephaniah. He's the desire of all the nations in Haggai. He's the branch, the builder of the temple, the king of the triumphal entry, the pierced one and the king of the earth in Zechariah. And he is the son of righteousness in Malachi. What's his name? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Everybody is guilty. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now look at verse 24. Being justified... What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous. Being justified as a gift. I told you that God is an immeasurable lover. And He also is a wonderful Father. And from a wonderful Father who overflows with immeasurable love comes every good and perfect gift. And our justification, Christians... Our being declared righteous before God, not guilty, innocent, and righteous before God, is a gift from God. By His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood... Through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God must be just or God ceases to be God. God must be just or God ceases to be God. God must be just according to the 613 commandments he issued to humanity. That means that as a just judge, he cannot fudge on them. He cannot turn a blind eye. He can't sweep it under the rug. Humanity must be judged. But God desires not only to be just, but he wants to be a justifier. One who declares righteous. But the problem with humanity is that there was not one who was good. Not one that would seek after him. All of them, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet he desired in his righteousness to not only maintain his justice, but declare as righteous humanity. 
And so he publicly displayed the verses. He publicly displayed Jesus Christ as a propitiation. A sacrifice for atonement, your translation might say. A propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. The sacrifice that satisfies. He displayed Jesus Christ upon the cross as a propitiation that God might maintain His justness and might declare us righteous. So He displayed Jesus Christ as a propitiation. A sacrifice that satisfied. Now what did Jesus satisfy? Well, number one, He satisfied the righteous standard of God because He obeyed every one of these 613 commandments. So he satisfied the righteous standard of God. Now Adam was the initial representative of humanity. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, becomes a representative of humanity. And he satisfied the righteous standard of God on our behalf because we could not. What else did he satisfy? He satisfied the justice of God. Because in the cross, the justice of God was met because Jesus, as a second Adam, becoming the representative of humanity, died a death upon the cross in our place. A substitutionary death. It wasn't an example. It wasn't a mistake. It was a purposeful sacrifice in our place. In accordance with a protocol that had been set by God himself throughout the Old Testament, that the innocent might die for the guilty. And Jesus, who was innocent, died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place, that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That he might be just and the justifier. He's just because his standard was met, He's just because justice was met in the sacrifice and the life and the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. And he's just because his wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And his wrath then being satisfied, justice being met, we can then be accepted. Now when we are accepted, we are wholly and completely accepted. We are adopted and adored. We are delivered and transformed. We are washed and we are renewed. Because what it means to be justified is not only to be declared innocent, because that would merely make us morally neutral, but it's also, as I said previously, to be declared righteous, because that would make us wonderful in the sight of God. It says, and you know it well, I quote it almost every week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because of our standing in Christ, him being the representative of humanity, we are made righteous. And so it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that our standing before God is in grace. Our standing before God is in favor. God does not look at you and let out a sigh of disappointment. 
That would be theologically incorrect because Jesus satisfied the standard of God upon the cross. God does not look at you with an air of anger because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross. And so now, when we ask Jesus to represent us before God the Father, then our standing before God is one of grace, undeserved, unmerited, lavished upon us favor. Not that we just merely become acceptable, but that we become adorable before God. That this immeasurable lover finds an object on which he could lavish the riches of his grace and his love. On which he can lavish the riches of his grace and his mercy and his love. And we, the church, are the objects of that love. That's why we sing like we do. That's why we praise like we do. That's why we have peace like we do. That's why we have joy like we do. And yet we find ourselves so easily beset by sin. And yet Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Paid in full. It's done. The work on the cross is once and for all. We are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. And yet we find that we are so easily entangled in those sins. God has given us such a gift in repentance that we can daily come to a throne of grace and repent. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is not a salvific verse. It doesn't have to do with salvation. It is a family verse. It's a living verse. What does it say? If we confess our sins before God, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a post-salvation prayer. It means I've already been forgiven, but I'm blowing it again. Lord, I'm blowing it again. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I did it again. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's finished. It's paid in full. We have not been redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, but with the precious blood of a lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is finished once and for all. And when he broke the power of sin, he set us free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So the Bible is very plain in its language in Romans 6. It says, just stop sinning. Just don't present yourself as an object for sin anymore. Present yourself to God as an instrument for righteousness. Because what Jesus is into is transformation. He's into transformation. And he saves men and women from hell to be sure. But he's passionate about transformation. He's so passionate that he said to the world, it's better that I go because if I go, I will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that works transformation in our lives. God is so passionate about transformation that the Son said, it's better that I go because the Spirit will come. The Spirit who sanctifies us. And Jesus prayed in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. 
And so his will is not only that we would be saved from hell, not only that we be accepted in heaven and adored from heaven, but that we would live transformed lives on earth. That we would live transformed lives on earth. He is all about transformation. But if we will ever experience transformation, we must lay hold of the fullness of the cross. He nailed to the cross the certificate of debt, which contained decrees that were hostile against us everywhere that we erred. He nailed it to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, it's finished. It is paid in full. Our salvation is complete. Holy Spirit, come and transform a people of God. Holy Spirit, help us now to lay hold of the fullness of the cross and all the benefits thereof. Church, I just want you to take that piece of paper. And you know what sins still need to be dealt with. There's ones that you've committed. There's ones that you intend to commit. And there's ones that have been committed against you. Holy Spirit, help us to exercise this in an atmosphere free from condemnation and full of truth. Your truth would reign in our hearts right now. Sins you've committed, intend to commit, and were committed against you. Write them down. Fold it up. And right across the front, dealt with, paid in full, handled, finished, once and for all. Holy Spirit, come and do a work of transformation in our hearts. It's Good Friday, Lord. We celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we don't want to be a people who sell the cross short. We want to be a people who lay hold of all the fullness of it. We want real freedom, Lord. We talk about it, but we want real freedom. We want to experience all the fullness of your love. We don't want to live in guilt and condemnation and shame. There's no condemnation for us anymore. Holy Spirit, come and minister the truth of the cross to our hearts. Lord, those who are weighed down with burdens, lift the burden. Those who feel filthy and defiled, cleanse and wash them, Lord. Those who feel trapped in that sin and full of shame, free them, Lord. Those who are puffed up, puffed up in their pride and in their arrogance, free them, Lord. Those who are paralyzed by their fear, free them, Lord. You are the King of freedom and the King of glory. Set your people free. Transform us into your image, Lord. And these things that we've written, you conquered them. You beat them. Minister that truth to our hearts, Holy Spirit. 
restore and refresh and set free your people.